Welcome to the Goals Podcast, the business case for women's sports, where we explore every corner of the women's sports industry from the field to the front office. I'm Caroline Fitzgerald, and I'm here to prove that it's good business to be in the business of women's sports. Today's episode is brought to you by Ally, a change maker in women's sports, steadfast in their commitment to the fight for media equity, because we're all better off with an ally. Our guest today is ESPN's Sarah Spain, who is also a minority owner of the Chicago Red Stars. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And I think more importantly, thank you for your advocacy and all of the work that you do every day to grow and support women's sports. Thank you for saying that. I appreciate it. It's like all of a sudden it feels like in the last couple of years, people are much more interested in that and much more like, hey, good job on that than it used to be, which is like the best reward for the early years of people just filling my inbox with trash, which still happens to be fair, but at least it's offset by a lot more enthusiasm. Absolutely. And we're going to get into that because I know you've been doing this a long time. So we're going to talk a lot more about how things have changed over the years with the growth of women's sports. I want to start, though, if you're okay with this, to hear more about your journey through sports, because you've had a pretty incredible journey, both as an athlete and as a professional. So can you take us through your path and how it's led you to where you are now? Yeah, I'll try to keep it short. But um Grew up playing sports. You know, I was like six feet tall by the time I was 12. So it was like a very big necessity to put to use the fact that I was a giant. And um, my sister's uh, not quite two years older than me. So we'd play sports in the backyard all the time. My parents are not super into sports, but they did play. So we grew up playing like tennis and golf and learning how to do stuff. And it was also the 90s in Chicago. So I was obsessed with Michael Jordan and the Bulls, obviously. Watched every game I could watch, all the coverage, read all the newspapers, had every Michael Jordan product you could possibly get, like, you know, all of it. And it still never occurred to me to work in sports. I was a three-sport athlete in field hockey, basketball, and track. I got recruited for all three of them for college and ended up being a heptathlete on the track and field team at Cornell University. And despite my obsession with the Bulls and being an athlete, literally not a soul in the world talked to me about how people make money working in sports. Um, There's this adage, if you can see it, you can be it. And I could not be more a perfect example of that because I did not see a single woman growing up covering sports in Chicago. Peggy Kaczynski was one of the, you know, OGs. But I, and, and then Melissa Isaacson had a byline in the papers, but I wasn't reading bylines. I was reading the story about the players. And then if you watch the Bulls, you saw the lovables, the cheerleaders. That's it. Other than that, you know, there was nothing to aspire to. So I grew up wanting to be on Saturday Night Live and Broadway. Uh, I ended up having surgery on my vocal cords. So my, my singing range is pretty limited now. I do a lot of rapping at karaoke instead of singing. And, um, and then went to Cornell and I was an English major in addition to taking classes in acting and dialects and all those things. I still was thinking I'm going to move to LA after college and at least give it a go. Um, with sports being at the same time as, as all the school plays, I did, um, talent show. I sang Donna Summer's last dance with all my friends in full like seventies disco regalia behind me dancing. Um, so I got my, I scratched that itch. I was all state in band and chorus. So I was like doing all the things. Um, 
And I thought, okay, I'm going to be an English major because it's smart. If I change my mind about this job, I'll have a better kind of base than if I was trying to do. And I couldn't have done theater as a major in college and track. So sort of like, this is the end of the run as an athlete. I'm not going to go on to the Olympics or anything. Um, and so I moved out to LA, was trying to do acting, was doing classes, was doing auditions, doing like little small things, took a hosting boot camp over the weekend. It was a three-day boot camp to learn how to host a show and like throw to break and welcome the guests and all the things. And you're supposed to pick something you're an expert in. And I was like, literature? Like, there's really nothing. Everyone else was trying to be on HGTV because it had just come out. So they're all doing, like, interior design and stuff. And I was like, I'll just, like, talk about the Bears. So, like, hey, everybody, it's Sarah Spain. Welcome to Chicago Bears Weekly. Like, and then throwing a break. And after this, we'll talk to running back. And the teacher was like, oh, you want to work in sports? And I was like, oh, no. No, there's no women in sports. I want to be funny. There's no women that get to be funny. And there's just no women in general. And she was like, it just feels really natural. Give it a shot, maybe. So I took a class at UCLA Extension in TV sports reporting. And I was like, duh, like, this is my writing. This is my extemporaneous speaking. This is all my Second City improv back and forth and interviewing and listening and all of that. And um, and I really felt like, oh, I can walk into any of these spaces. I've been an athlete my whole life. Um, so that was the beginning of it. And then just worked my way up. Started out as a PA at Fox Sports, uh, Fox Sports Net, not FS1, not the main one, like the little regional networks, um, which was actually a great first gig. I had to watch every sport and log the action and then pick two to three highlights, right what the anchor person was going to say. It was like a nightly wrap-up show. So I had to watch NASCAR and golf and like things like hockey that I was like, I like hockey. And then I was like, wait, but I don't have to know all the rules all the players all the time. So it was a really great kind of like, and for those of you out there who are getting started, who think you don't know enough, you probably don't. And it's okay. You'll figure it out. I was like writing punt every time there was a kickoff. And my boss was like, sometimes it's a punt. Sometimes it's a kickoff. I'm like, oh yeah, we have to use different words. Um, because again, no one had ever fostered my interest in it. So I just watched for fun. And then eventually I figured out, okay, if I'm going to do this for a living, the details matter. I need to like, and then it was just all day, every day, watching around the horn, listening to Rome, like watch, watching Sports Center, like just engulfing myself in this new world and trying to do it. And then I uh, moved back to Chicago and started ESPN Radio and the rest is history. That's an incredible journey. Sarah, what are all of the things you're doing right now? Take us <laughs> through like your current resume of things well, that you're doing. It actually just drastically changed. So up until last December, I was doing a podcast called That's What She Said Once a Week around the horn a couple times a week, writing for ESPNW, uh, Spain and Fitz nightly radio show every single night nationally, um, and then the occasional Outside the Lines, Sports Center, E60, a bunch of other stuff. So my contract changed at the end of December. I'm writing a book, actually, which is the big part of this year, and then working for ESPNW, and then doing some side projects. I'm actually going to the Women's World Cup with Gatorade and Angel City, and have done some cool ESPNW summits in Toronto and New York and some other stuff with Gatorade. So uh, ESPNW is keeping me pretty busy, but I'm writing a book that's based on a story I did for ESPN a couple years ago that there was an E60 and we won an Emmy, which was pretty cool. And the written version that I did won a couple writing awards, which was very cool since it was my first long form piece. And that editor was just chasing us for the last couple years. And the timing worked out perfectly where she left for Simon and Schuster and had a better advance and a better offer. And I was like, now's the time. This is when I don't have 8 million things. So 
It is a very different workflow. It is like I spent 13 straight years talking to people all day on TV and radio. And now most of my day is sitting in a chair by myself for like eight straight hours. That certainly is different, no doubt, (laughs) but so incredible and very excited for the book to come out. So please keep us posted here at Goals so we can make sure to share the news. That's so wonderful. Everyone to buy it, pre-order it, buy multiple copies, hand it on the street, all that stuff. 100%. I'm going to be real annoying about it. (laughs) Shameless, proud plugging. I love it. So Sarah, you've been doing so much and you've been doing this for a long time. As we talked about at the beginning, looking at the women's sports space specifically, what are some of the key ways that you've seen the industry change since you were a student athlete at Cornell or since you professionally entered the space? Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. One of the things that, so I'll start back at, at college, like when, when we've gone back for these campus conversations that we do for ESPNW, we go to major uh, universities and we have all of the female varsity athletes come together for a panel conversation with alumni and then some breakout sessions. And one of the things we've really tried to explain to them is not only things like how to write a resume if you're an athlete, where you can fill in all the skills that you have that aren't going to show up because you didn't get to go do that internship because you were you were working on your sport, but also things like Title IX and what is actually promised to you at your school, which when I was coming up, I knew Title IX existed, but it was sort of like Title IX is why we get to play. It doesn't also mean that we should be getting the same resources and facilities and everything else. Um, I, without really knowing it, I have two parents who are lawyers. So a couple different times during my life, I've sort of unintentionally been mildly litigious, not with actual law, but like they tried to make all of the female track athletes at Cornell change into a different regulation, like outfit for the weight room with a t-shirt and shorts. Cause they said our spandex was distracting to the football players. And meanwhile, we're wearing spandex because we're, first of all, it's better for what we're training for, but we're jumping into sand pits and stuff. Like we're wearing the best thing for what we do. And if you can't concentrate, that's on you, not on us. So I created a petition. I had multiple sports sign it and like say what, how bullshit it was. And that went away immediately. So things like that, where I didn't really realize that I was sort of like already had this activist spirit for stuff. But beyond that, I certainly wasn't like looking around and being like, hey, we don't get as cool of stuff as the guys. I was like, well, that's life. That's how it's always been. And so I look back and I'm like, oh, yeah, we're getting way better in terms of between NIL and Title IX, everything else. It's still a major uphill battle, but there's way more attention being paid to resources and everything else for female athletes in NCAA. Um, So when I started, I worked at Fox Sportsnet in a newsroom that usually had somewhere around 35 people in it. They were watching all the games, logging the action, cutting the clips, editing all the stuff. There was usually two women, sometimes just one out of the 35, um, all the usual cracks at the expense of WNBA players or, you know, women who used to be hot and aren't anymore. And like, I had to really learn to pick my battles because I was already other by being like the only woman or one of two in there. I didn't want to further exacerbate it by being like, every time someone said something misogynist and insulting, I have to cape up for women. I did do it a lot, but it was like, let me pick my battles and always using my sense of humor to offset, you know, not the naggy, don't say that I'm offended, but more like, let me crack a joke about this or that and try to remind you that what you're saying is is not cool. But we didn't cover any women's sports ever, ever. There wasn't a single women's sport that was ever logged or watched or like maybe during an Olympic run or something, although I don't remember it. Um, and then I actually, one of my first gigs on camera was called fantasy sports girl. 
And I was looking around and this was during the wild, wild west of sports blogs because I'm old folks. And this was when like every blog was like, here's some sports, but here's also a bunch of girls in their bikinis right alongside it. Like that was the only way you got to go to the fun, young, sarcastic, satirical, like well-written stuff was, hey, but we're also going to be so misogynist and fratty and inclusive. And we're going to be awful to gay people and women and people of color and whatever else, right? It was just a really um, like wild, wild west. And so I'm looking around and I'm like, where do people get their start on camera? Like, I'm clearly not going to just go to ESPN and Sports Center. And a lot of people said, you go to small market, you get a job at local media and whatever. But because I wasn't a broadcast major, I had no tape. I had no experience, right? So I was like, I got to get some gigs at the lowest level. I'm looking around and a lot of them are these like pop-ups that would pop up at the bottom of a website and be like, Hey, it's Julie with your like fantasy football tips or like now it would be like, Hey, it's Karen. And I've got all your biggest bets for this weekend's games. Like they're not a full thing on the site. They're just this pop-up. But I'm like, look around, like, how do we do this? And what I'm seeing every time is like the hottest chicks. And I'm looking It's Aaron Andrews is the most prominent woman on TV. All the women on my websites are like boobs up tons of makeup. And I'm like, Oh, this is this is how you get into the business, right? I wanted to be funny. That was always my goal. I wanted to be Kenny Main. And if you don't know who that is, youngsters, look them up. Look up some main events. That was my jam. Um, but I'm like, the only way to get my foot in the door, and also at work, there were two women who worked alongside me, and they would dress for work as if they were like going to be on camera. But we sat in a chair and watched games for hours. So I'm wearing what all the guys are wearing. I want to fit in. I want to look like I'm legit and I'm just a sports fan. So I've got like a bull shirt and jeans on, and they're head to toe. And they are getting asked by people there, hey, do you want to come check out the studio or do you want to make a reel? And I'm not. So I'm like, I'm doing this wrong. I'm supposed to be like super hot, whatever. So I start looking around for jobs. And the first one I get is this fantasy sports girl gig it's from the producers of Jim Rome. So they had this amazing studio. They let me write the copy so I could claim I was a writer on my resume, but I had to wear like basically football jerseys turned into like only fans tops to make it modern. And I did it myself, which by the way, like, it, 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 like major props to my sewing skills that I could take a Jersey, cut it. And then like, sew strings to make it like, like a cinch top or like turn it into a tank top or a halter, like whatever they were like, whatever boobs, like more boobs, more boobs. Like I'm like, okay. So then I'm like, Hey guys, you're going to want to pick up Greg Olson, not just because he's a tight end, but because of like, what, you know, so I have to do this. That's not my personality at all. But again, I'm working in this like $2 million studio with ESPN producers. I'm getting to write. I'm like on camera. It's my first job. Like I remember in the audition, they intentionally put a lot of stuff like Hushman Zada in to see if like the people knew what they were talking about. So if you come in to interview and you can't pronounce any of the names, I, I can't remember. Antoine Randall L was one of them. Like I still remember because he was like, whoa. And I'm like, I mean, yeah, I want to work in sports. I don't actually want to put my boobs up to my face and be like, hey guys, fantasy football, Sarah here. But this is the jobs that are available, right? So that was one of the first ones. I started writing for a bunch of blogs for free. Um, and it was a terrible, I mean, my first big interview, I got completely sexually harassed. The guy tried to kiss me. He talked about what kind of sex we would have, commented on my body, talked about how we like manscaped. It was awful. Um, and I thought it was just him. And the next day when I went in with him in a room with the person who would be hiring me, the guy was like, oh, I thought of a great idea for a show. It's just a half hour of Sarah in a chair and I'm standing above her looking down at her tits. And the guy hiring was like, oh, I'm like, 
oh my God, like, where am I? Like what the, and I'd had this like really naive idea of what it was to be a division one Ivy league, six foot tall, badass, never backing down woman. Like, I'm like, it's not going to happen to me. I haven't even gotten like a job yet. And it's already happening. Got to Chicago and was working for a startup site that put me immediately into the clubhouses and locker rooms, which again, great learning opportunity, was really lucky. There was a lot of people that had been in the main media side in Chicago that started this startup. So they had access that websites were not getting at the time. So I was going into locker rooms and doing my best to to be creative and interesting and get good interviews. And it was all the stuff you'd heard about, like the rumors behind my back. She must be sleeping with the players because they're giving her better answers. Meanwhile, I was just close to their age and doing a, a lot of research and trying to be funny and trying to like bring out their personality. So it was, it was awful at the beginning. And I think now like there's still so much of that, that women have to go through. Like I always say the, the ceiling is higher than ever, but the basement is the same. Like there's so many more jobs you can ascend to, but at the beginning, you're going to get treated like crap, disrespected. Nobody's going to believe, you know, what you're talking about or that you're there for the right reasons. And you have to get through that, which is, it's awful that it's still that way. Um, but that's, I mean, that's not okay anymore, right? It almost, it's not that it was okay, but it was really hard to get someone to advocate for you. It was just sort of like, well, that's the way it is. You know, you're in a man's world, baby. And now the the teams and everybody there, the support system would absolutely not stand for that. Um, and then as far as coverage goes, I started working at ESPN 1000 as an update anchor. And I mean, I would occasionally turn on my mic in between when I was supposed to be on if the hosts were like just so offensive that I couldn't stand it. And I would try to find some clever way to call them out for it because I was like, I can't just sit by. And and this is why I never wanted to do radio because it's a bunch of dudes insulting women left and right or being misogynist. And I felt like I had to do something. And so I made that choice pretty early, like within a year of that first ESPN 1000 job that it was really nice to have people like want to grab a beer and like think, oh, that cool chick, she likes sports, like what a hot chick. And that I cared more about like changing how things would be after I left. And so then a lot of people turned on me because they were like, no one cares. Stop, you know, stop talking about like, let, let the guys be themselves. And I just couldn't do that. Um, and then as far as coverage goes, zero, zero coverage, like zero coverage of the women's teams in town, zero coverage of women doing big things. Like maybe Serena Williams would get a mention, but that was it. And it took years before there was any integration. I started with ESPNW in October of 2010 and the fighting tooth and nail for the littlest things. And to know now that ESPN has rights to so many women's leagues that you can watch sport. I mean, so much more still needs to be done. It is still... I mean, it's still an average of about four to five percent of mainstream, you know, media, not not counting. I think I think they need to there actually are um, updating those statistics now with taking into account digital streaming, social media, all that. It is going to be better for sure than that number that we've been hearing for literally decades. But it's close enough where it's still like you can turn on SportsCenter and see highlights about Caitlin Clark and Angel Reese or see NWSL occasionally or things like that. Um, so it's better for sure. Um and the buy-in because of the whole point of your podcast that there's a business there now and money to be made, it's going to keep growing because honestly, that's what drives people. And we've been saying all along, you have to give it an opportunity for people to see it, like it, invest in it, and then you'll watch it grow. But the whole model of put a million dollars into a sport and then be like, oh no, we're losing money. And then put 240 million into the 11th X Games, or uh, sorry, XFL, and then be like, oh, we lost uh, 230 million, but let's do it again. It's like, but wait, hold on. I know, Sarah. I feel like 
yes, we've come such a long way. We truly have. But a lot of these barriers really still are in place. So I guess to flip it around a little bit, you're looking around the space now. What are some of the things that you're excited about? Like looking forward, what are some of the things that like really pump you up about the future of women's sports? Well, one of the first ones is the model that we've seen now in the NWSL that's leaking over to the WNBA as well, which is this like group ownership. This is so useful, not just because of the financial stability it provides when you have multiple wealthy people who are invested in a product and want to see it succeed, but also have money to fall back on if they need to keep growing, investing, putting money back in, all of that. Also, because one of the issues that the NWSL went through that the recent investigations really brought to light was if you have essentially 10 or 11 old white rich men upon which an entire league depends, your desire to call those men out for very valid things is dampened by your fear that they will shut the whole thing down. And when you have groups of ownership, first of all, there's more people to talk to if there are problems. There's hopefully someone in that ownership group that you feel like you can go to if you're a player or a staff member, but also there's accountability for the behaviors of people within that group. Hopefully if there's somebody who's doing the wrong thing, the rest can choose to vote them out or buy them out, or at least hold them accountable and change their behaviors. Whereas when it's one monolith, it's just impossible. And then that kind of buy-in that started really with Angel City, you're looking around NWSL now, there's NFL owners, there's NFL players, there's people with real ass money. And I, you know, for the ones that are sort of getting forced out because they financially can't keep up, that's a bummer. Thank you for all you did when things were at the lowest level. I hope you get a massive paycheck on your way out for the valuation in the league that has changed so drastically. I mean, when I bought in with the Red Stars two years ago, it was a $2 million expansion fee for a league to add a new team. That team would have to pay the league $2 million to join. It is $50 million this year. Okay. That's two years. Okay. It's huge. So I'm hoping the financially strapped ones who can't afford to stay in the game anymore, get your payday, sell for a lot, and then move out of the way because that's the only way this grows is if people can build facilities, have proper stadiums to play in, pay for travel and health and all the other things to legitimize it and show the value that everybody knows is there in terms of the play. So I'm excited about that. And then I think I loved what went down with Caitlin Clark and Angel Reese. A lot of people were saying, isn't it bad for the sport? And I was like, well, part of it is because I'm annoyed that it's becoming so stereotypically like right down the middle of racial lines. And a lot of people were really acting out of pocket in terms of comments that they were making, particularly about Angel. But honestly, I saw it the other way as well. And I, but they were talking about it on first take. They were talking about it on the morning shows. It was everywhere. And I'm like, we don't do this for women's sports. The coverage is usually, they won the whole thing. And we're going to mention them for the first time today. Congrats on beating the world at everything. We noticed it today. Uh, or they got arrested. And now we're going to spend more time talking about them than we ever have in the history of their life because something salacious happened that people are going to be interested in. Um, or, you know, some one-off, right? We don't tell the regular stories that allow people to get invested and coming back. So I saw someone, and I forget her name, but she she nailed it. She said, if the business of sports media is not only to show people the sports, but to keep them coming back again, we crush it for men's sports and we suck at it for women's. We do not, and, and you know, I've basically got my system. It's stories, stakes, sa- stats, and stars. 
what are the stories you need to know? Well, these people used to be on the same team and now they're playing against each other for the first time and they hate each other. Stats, this person is two goals away from breaking the record. Um, stars, who are the superstars? Watch this person. They're the ones that are going to be the ones to keep an eye on. And then there's one more that I forgot. Stories, stats, stars, stakes. What are the stakes? Is this a regular season game? Do they get to be in first place after this? Is this a playoff? Like, we know those for men's sports because it is a constant sort of, it's an opt out. Like we're going to hear about it, whether we choose to or not. Women's is opt in. We got to find the website and then find the coverage and then find the Twitter person who covers it. And then, and so when you give people that we have those examples, it's things like the Olympics. We learn about some figure skater that we've never cared about before. And now we're crying on our couch because she fell on the triple axle that was supposed to be the thing that won her medal. Right. This was her last chance. Oh, like, you know, and we know we don't know anything about her until this week. We don't do that in women's sports. So uh, like, especially places like around the horn, when I've had the opportunity, you know, are we missing anything today? Hey, well, did you see this story? Like we, we should get into this and demanding that the people on the show are caught up enough on it to, to talk about it. So that's the other thing. Like if you have a whole sports department at a regular news or a channel of people who are like Sabrina Ionescu had it and you're like, no, come on now. You're learning all those hockey names. You could do it. Listen to like one YouTube clip. And, and that's the stuff that matters the most. So with, with things like Caitlin Clark and Angel Reese and that, just that March Madness in general, the final four, the championship game, all the 9 million people watching, like those things hype me up. Soccer across the world, across the globe, where there's 90,000 people in a sold out stadium to watch women play. Um, and the journalism around it. I think people underestimate that the storytelling aspect is what often convinces people who maybe haven't given it a shot. If you have no one investigating what Sedona Prince and the rest of the women said about the Women's March Madness, you don't find out that there's an independent report that then tells you that Women's March Madness is evaluated at least $80 million a year with room to grow. Guess what that number, when it's out there and reported and people are writing about it, means sponsorships go up, the TV rights go up, we find out that the NCAA has been horrifically holding back a massive value proposition, probably just because of misogyny. Like, I mean, the NCAA, they don't like anything more than money. So the fact that even they were so deeply baked in their misogyny that they did not see this incredible financial opportunity, but that's what the reporting does. And that's across the board. If you don't have up-to-date statistics, like from the Fan Project and Sports Innovation Lab, that tell you how much time people are spending watching, how much merch they're buying, how invested they are, all of that stuff, then you're going to use these old metrics to be like, it's so hard to sell women's sports. It shouldn't be if you're actually putting in the work and the problem is so many places are not. Um, so I think I, in addition to telling you things I was excited about, complained about a lot, which is exactly where we are in women's sports. <laughs> That's okay, Sarah. We'll we'll allow it here. I want to <laughs> go back to your part ownership of the Chicago Red Stars, though, because I think this is just so incredible. Not only do you like talk all the time about <laughs> how people, brands, networks should invest in women's sports, you did it. You invested cold, hard cash to get yeah. involved with an NWSL team. So can you talk about that decision and what that process was like to become a part owner? Yeah. So, um, well, it's the, the first twinkle in my eye, Abby Wambach and Glennon Doyle were on our ESPNW summit when it was virtual during COVID. And I had the honor of interviewing them and I'm like obsessed with them. And it was right when the Angel City story was coming out. The team hadn't, didn't have a player yet, wasn't fully formed, but they'd announced it. 
And I kind of was talking to them about that process. And in Abby's book, she writes about, you know, if they don't give you a seat at the table, screw pulling up a chair and just build a new table. And I was like, you literally are doing that. Like you're just building a whole new model and then bringing it in and influencing. And I kind of joking was like, I want to own a team, you know, like in my head, I'm like, don't have the money or opportunity. And I think that was out there. And then I had had a relationship with the majority owner of the Red Stars from going to games. Like I just enjoyed going. And uh, maybe the year before I joined the ownership team, I wanted to bring more people there and show them what a good time it was. And I felt like awareness was really low that this team existed in Chicago and that these World Cup stars were in your backyard playing and you could see them. Um, and so I posted a bunch of things. I made little like internet posters. I was like, I'm throwing a huge tailgate, like get your own game ticket. And then I got your pizza, your beer, your games, some giveaways, like just trying to make it an event. And the Red Stars spotted and they were like, we'll help out with this and we'll like, let's put together something. And so um, talked to him there. I wrote a story about the Olympic bump for NWSL teams and how a lot of times attendance will go way up right after the games and um, and the World Cup. And so I wrote and interviewed him for that one. So I knew him. We had met a couple of times and he had already always been looking around the market for people who were soccer fans or Red Stars fans or people who might be able to help like just get the word out. And so he looked and saw the Angel City model and was like, hey, I could use financial help and basically built in ambassadors, like people who will pay to become owners and have a stake, but also bring attention to the team um, in a really crowded market. That's Chicago's basic biggest problem is there's 8 million teams and things to do and everything else. Um, so he approached me. I um, kind of asked about like what levels of buy-in there were. I don't have millions and millions of dollars to be like, here you go. But I wanted to, to like make sure I really put in like a stake that I was going to feel and care about. And so went to my financial advisor and we kind of figured out a number that was, I, I had never invested in literally anything. So it was like very scary. Um, and I, I actually ended up doubling my initial investment after like a couple of weeks in, because the process of being in this ownership group and being on the calls and all this just got me even more like excited to be a part of it and to want to help. And I had talked to Julie Foudy and Glennon and some of the owners of Angel City. And I was like, I don't even know what questions to ask. Should I ask about like ROI or like a timetable for what? And they were like, I don't know, talk to someone who's an expert, but also just keep in mind that like, this is not going to be like you, you instantly make a bunch of money the next year. Like this is women's sports, slow growth. There's a reason why they need more investors. And what, what's funny is I thought, okay, I'm going to put in a bunch of money that I may never get back and have this incredible experience of backing up what I say, being a part of something I care about, helping change the face of ownership, inspiring other people to get involved and, you know, diving into this thing that's really meaningful to me. And I might not make any money out of it. And instead, it's been a pretty hard and not fun experience. And I'm probably going to end up getting bought out and make a lot of money. So... Long story short, our majority owners being forced to sell after those investigations. So the likelihood of a new owner coming in and buying out everyone as opposed to only buying out his percentage is very high. And I don't blame them for what's gone on with the league and this team in particular with our extremely toxic former coach. I would want to clean slate it instead of trying to figure out who's bringing the right things and who's a problem and everything else. So um, because of that, the sale is is pending. I, I don't know when we don't have any final uh, word on exactly when it's going to be done. And, and all of that, we're just kind of in a holding pattern for it. So I will likely be bought out. I don't, I don't, I don't know that for sure. 
And based on the valuations I told you earlier, the league is in a much better place. The team is in a much better place. So I might be just out with some hot, hot wad of cash in my pocket and try to figure out what's next. Um, it's been an incredible learning experience. I am so thankful for the relationships I've made across the league for the way that I've been able to truly just influence people to start thinking about, could I become a part of this? Even if it's not at the ownership level, what are the ways to put your money where your mouth is and to be more proactive? Um, and I do have friends that have become owners at Angel City, and I did bring in four or five of the other owners at the Red Stars. So, you know, I, I got my recruitment on, and um, it's just been the investigation and the difficulty within our own team of centering the players and doing what's right instead of worrying about covering your ass or finances, I think has been the hardest pill to swallow. I, I understand that when I look at like the NFL, it's a men's league, it's billions of dollars. I don't no offense to any of them. I'm sure maybe one or two are decent people. Probably not though that I don't have a lot of faith in the NFL owners as people. Right. And I wanted it to be different. And unfortunately, whether it was the abuse and the sexual coercion and the awful politics at the coach player level, it's also the sort of front office levels across the board at so many different places that you're like, it sucks that we can't, I just, I've never cared so much about wanting to be really, really rich. Like I never really cared. And now I'm like, man, if I was a billionaire, I would do so much good shit. And I would be able to like make up for so much of this. And you're looking around and you're looking for extremely wealthy people to take on some of these teams and these roles. And you're like, it's just, there's not a lot of like the the Venn diagram of really rich people and really awesome, cool, progressive people are is not very good. So that was one of my I don't mean to cut. That's literally my next question for you. If you had a billion dollars yeah. to invest specifically benchmark for women's sports, how would you spend it? I was going to say, because first I would have to like help a whole lot of like humanitarian crises. I love sports, but there's a whole lot that I would do before I would for do that. sure. Uh, if it was benchmarked for women's sports, yeah, I mean, I would I would love to build an insane team to own the Red Stars and and be the person bidding to take it over. I would love to be a part of the Chicago Sky, even at the highest levels, like just um, I had gotten an offer to to be a part of the group that invested in the WNBA as a league that big investment group that just came out, they, they just announced not long ago. And it was shortly after the Red Stars. And I just, I don't have enough money to be in all these different spaces. So I wasn't able to do it, but um, yeah. And I think more so I would also be uh, not applying it just to the leagues, but to the media. I think that's really where the biggest problem still is. You know, I'm even at somewhere like ESPN that was bold enough to take Laura Gentile's idea of ESPNW a dozen plus years ago. And buy rights for leagues and try to do more. And it still feels so hard to convince people sometimes at the highest levels that there should be, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've pitched a women's sports show, digital, terrestrial, five minutes, half an hour, one hour on the weekends, right after sports center, during sports center, like the number of times I've said, how can we just have a thing that gives us what sports center or other shows do for men's sports where you know what's going on and it doesn't have to be that something has to reach the highest level for people to be talking about it and debating it the way that we talk about dumb things on around the horn or or local radio all the time and um and the pushback is still there and that i think is been 
the saddest is that you need you you can get really far but you need the people at the highest positions to still care and that's why i mean it's like anything else in allyship like as much as you don't want to depend on the ruling class and the powerful majority there's only so far you can get sometimes without them helping and um and so i think that's a lot of it for me and personally i have seen the difference in the last 5 or 6 years in my investment when my timeline on social media is feeding me things that i didn't know about female athletes and teams and sports because then i know that and then i want to watch and that is me who is already in it just doesn't have the bandwidth especially when i was hosting a nightly radio show for 2 hours every night that i have to watch every men's sport and then we're not really talking about the women until i pigeonhole it in and pitch them on it and i'm watching that for my own thing so i don't have time and so when i'm when it's coming to me the same way it comes for all the men's sports i'm not looking and someone posts i'm like whoa that gymnast just did that or that swimmer just did that then i want to go find them and watch it and if we could do that at a much larger scale for more people um you see how sometimes it happens organically us women's national team is one of my favorite teams of all time because it was in spite of their own federation holding them back. It was in spite of the media being like, hey, this is cool. Let's do a little bit. And then it was like, we got to do more. Everybody loves them. Oh, my God. Every All our stuff is sold out again for the millionth year in a row. And yet we still won't buy more stuff so that it's not sold out. But like those examples, you're like, sometimes when it breaks through, it's giving you a model for what to do to be proactive with the other ones to give people a chance to fall in love that way. Sarah, we're going to put a pin in it right there for a second to hear a quick message from our partner. And then we're going to come back to our closing questions to close this out. As you may know, the goal of this podcast is to show brands, networks, and people in general that it's good business to invest in women's sports. We know that women in sports are incredible and are breaking boundaries and setting records. But did you know they receive less than 10% of all sports media coverage? It's a vicious cycle. The lack of media coverage means fans miss out while networks and sponsors can't see the fan base and don't invest in the media. Now, more than ever, it's time for brands to jump in. That's why our sponsor, Ally, is making big moves to put an end to the cycle and give women's sports the coverage they deserve. This year, Ally is continuing to invest in access for women's sports through sponsorships with ESPN, CBS, and women-owned outlets giving fans more opportunities to watch what they want, where they want. So tune in and be part of the change. To learn more, check out watchtochange.com because we're all better off with an ally. Okay, Sarah, we're back with our last three rapid fire closing questions. Number one, if you could wave a magic wand and create equity in one aspect of sports, what would it be? Oh, that's impossible. Uh, What's well, a magic wand? So it's like a really powerful magic wand. So it is so powerful that at the same time I wave it, it simultaneously makes women's sports less fraught with sexual abuse and harassment while also making the media cover women's sports as much as men's. 100%. So it is that powerful. So powerful. Great answer. Two more questions. Do you have anything you want to plug or share? I know we already talked about your book that's coming out. I don't know if you want to talk about it again or anything else you want to uh, get in um, there before we close out. Whenever I have a chance to plug, I plug um, my two favorite causes. I'm on the board for Embark, 
which helps Chicago area public high schoolers do experiential experiential learning and journeys so they can learn outside of their very small areas of Chicago and be passionate and learn about music or culture, dance or food or anything that might um, inspire them to stay in school and then give back to their own neighborhoods. And then Hear the Cheers, which is a charity I co-founded with um, a mentee of mine, Eliza Peters, that helps give hearing aids and equipment to young athletes so they can stay in sports, which usually aren't covered by insurance which is kind of wild. Uh, so those are my two plugs. Since I don't have any current, like uh, the book is not close to done. I would love to give you a day. It'll be out. I don't know. I just hope that it's ad day in the future and that it exists at some point. But um, yeah, so I'll, I'll do my causes instead. That's great. We'll definitely promote the book when it comes out. But in the meantime, we will link to both of those organizations that you're a part of in the show notes so everybody can check them out. Okay, last question, Sarah. It's the one we always close with here on the podcast. Can you summarize in a few sentences why you think it's good business to invest in women's sports? The interest is there. The talent is there. The quality of the product is there. A lot of the early investment is there. And what it needs is to be treated like a true startup, given the same resources and investment and time frame to succeed that we do with so many other things instead of letting antiquated ideas about women's sports and self-fulfilling prophecies about their failure lead you to tentative investment or underselling valuations because you're so concerned. You have to have a long timeline. And if you do, it will massively pay off. And finally, for the millionth time, this is what I should just plug because I always do. It's like I work for them. If you haven't read the Sports Innovation Fan Project 1 or Fan Project 2, it's all in there. It holds your hand through the numbers. And the data is so important. I think we get so caught up in the subjective argument of it's a good thing or we treat it like a charity case. It's not. It's a good business decision and it's a financial opportunity that people are years behind in terms of turning it into a massive, massive payout. And so with that data, that's what you need to take into spaces because a lot of people are not going to be moved by subjective arguments. That was not a few sentences. I am very loquacious. I think you asked me like three questions this whole time. Sorry. You have been a joy. Thank you so much. That was well, a great I write a book because I just <laughs> don't have anyone to talk to all day. And then I come hang out with you and I can't shut up. It's great. It's perfect. Can't wait to read the book. This has been <laughs> such a fun conversation, Sarah. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, you're so generous with your time and just such a great leader in this space. And it's a pleasure to get to chat with you about women's sports. Well, thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening to the Goals Podcast, the business case for women's sports presented by Ally, a changemaker in women's sports steadfast in their commitment to the fight for media equity because we're all better off with an ally. To learn more about Goals and our work to bring more brand investment into women's sports, be sure to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram or visit our website at goals-sports.com. And remember, it's simply good business to be in the business of women's sports.